Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdette. Coming up, an author tries to describe his own novel, and it gets weird. My, like, pitch went way, like, all over the radio dial. Like, I was like, wee like I was like started out I was like oh, it's about uh, metaphysical puppeteers Rafe Larson on ambiguity open endings and incomplete lists then Iranian journalist Nazila Fadi helps us get to know great lady nerd of history Shireen Abadi and we get homework from the best shows Tom Sharpling and John Worcester that and your nerd confessions on Nerdette because everybody's a little nerdy about something make it snappy nerd nerds We're talking with author Rafe Larson today. You might remember his first book. It came out in 2009, and it's called The Selected Works of T.S. Spivet. It was very well loved. I have to admit that I actually haven't read it yet. It's one of those books that's on my list of once there stop being new books in the world, I can go back and read the old ones. But you don't actually want people to stop writing new books either. Conundrum. Yeah, I realize that's not actually a realistic goal. But this is one of those books that my mom would read me excerpts from. So when I heard that Rafe Larson had a second book coming out, I knew I was going to read it. It's called I Am Radar, and it is like extremely difficult to describe. So instead of me trying, I'm just going to put that task right on Rafe Larson. It's 1975, New Jersey, two white parents birth a black child sort of inexplicably and try to figure out what went on, basically. But that doesn't really scratch the surface, you know? No, I mean, I feel like that was sort of the initial pitch I first read about it and was like, all right, sure, you know, Rafe Larson, I'll give it a shot. I'm game. But yeah, there was so much more to it than that, that it quickly became like, oh, wait a second. This isn't about that at all. Right. And that also seems to pigeonhole it. They're like, oh, so is this a novel about race? Exactly. Which it isn't. No, it's more about like identity and like sort of. Yeah, I think it's about figuring out where you fit. Yeah. And also, like, yeah, what is the purpose of art? Yeah, Yeah. that to me, more than anything, I think if I could really boil it down, I would say it's about how in the worst of times of human history, those are the moments when following your passion and actually having artistic vision are the most important things. Yeah. Even when you would think that that shouldn't play into survival. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of the seeds for the book arose when I read an article about Susan Sontag putting on Waiting for Godot in Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo, like I think the last year, 1995. And reading this article and having the kind of twin reactions, which I think a lot of people had, which were on the one hand, oh, that's amazing. Like these actors risked their lives to go rehearse this play. It was like a candlelit, bombed out theater. And then audience came and, again, risked their lives and, like, went through intersections. Snipers were, you know, shooting at them. There's that 
aspect, which is like, wow, what can humanity do in the face of great danger? And then the other aspect is like, what the hell was she thinking? Like the audacity (laughs) and the kind of total arrogance to go in there and be like, these people need Beckett, you know, and that those things can actually exist simultaneously. You know, the kind of ridiculousness of putting on a production in a literal siege and also the beauty of it. I think those twin emotions are also what I feel when I'm writing. Which, you know right. what I mean? Yeah, I was about to say, you seem really comfortable with that ambiguity. Whenever I was writing this book, I wanted uncertainty and simultaneity, which is you know a fundamental aspect of quantum mechanics, to be sort of present on the page in like a real emotional way. So I intentionally wanted you to be unsure if a character actually had died or was still alive. I mean, I don't know how it worked out for the readers, but I wanted to see like if I put you in that intense manufactured uncertainty. How do you deal with that? Are you uncool with that? Are you like, wait, I need answers? Or can you actually kind of accept it? And like, what does that acceptance do for the reader? Someone was talking about how one of their favorite activities to just kind of bliss out was to like think about their favorite books and keep the story going beyond where the book ended. And it was such a foreign concept to me because so much of why I love the books I love is because they end the way they do. I'm so satisfied with whatever that conclusion is that I feel like it's almost this blasphemy to keep it going, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, and from a writer's perspective, endings are the hardest, you know, because you want to sound that final note that's not too sort of rapturous and like, and now I've tied everything up. Check out the bow. Isn't it beautiful? And that's the answer to everything. No, you don't want to do that because that cheats the reader. The chord you want to end on needs to sound like a finality, but also that there could be another chord. You're just not playing it. Because I think kind of the best time, well, there's a lot of good times of reading a book, but like that time when you just finish it and you're like, whoa, okay, wait, what? You know, that, you know, you want to create that space. And I've found that that space is much more generative when you leave open some pretty big questions, you know, and don't answer everything. But that's interesting about extending the narrative. I mean, all the time, like, so are you writing a sequel? Oh, I'm sure. People are hardwired. I guess maybe because of our culture. And it's like, a trilogy. Yeah. It's a blockbuster trilogy. Right. They're like, me like, me want more. You know, so they, that's like <laughs> what our culture is. Yeah. And I'm like, hell no. But that said, I think for both books, I've been interested in expanding the space of the novel online. So both books, the website acts as a sort of satellite system that provides a couple more data points for people to kind of explore. Because I'm interested in the way that books can talk to other media. You know, I think... Books will be around, books will be healthy, but they can get smart in sort of crosstalk. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that reminds me of Marisha Pestle's Night Film. Did you read that one? Yes, yeah. And I also saw the website. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. super brilliant use of storytelling across these different media, but still putting the emphasis on the book in this really smart way. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, why we love novels is because they're bounded, they're finite. That feeling of finishing and wanting more is such a delicious feeling. And if you can't just answer that with like, okay, here's more, you know, but I think there are cues that we can take from novels that curated thingness of a narrative and put them online. We're talking with author Rafe Larson about his new book, I Am Radar. I love so much that idea of the term thingness. Someday we're going to need to do just a whole show on that. But in the meantime, Rafe, I Am Radar spans both decades and continents. How much travel did you do for this? Yeah, I did a ton. And for a while I was like, is this even a book? And I was like, well, I got to travel to places at least. (laughs) (laughs) That was like my, my little golden egg. But it's always interesting to go to a place with the intention of writing fiction about it. Because 
if you're traveling with like a fixer, they're like, what are you looking for? And you're like, I have no idea. Just show me places. They're like, okay. So you're trying to like pick out little beautiful details that you don't know what they are until you see them. They're used to like someone trying to track down their grandfather or whatever. And mm. um, also what happened with this book, which was kind of crazy, is like this happened with Belgrade in Serbia. I wrote a whole Belgrade section before I'd even been there. And then I went to Belgrade to kind of fact check my work, you know, but fact check in like a kind of spiritual thisness way, you know. <laughs> and okay, I changed some things. I added some details like that mural is actually there. You can test. But in a weird way, I was more interested in my fictional Belgrade than the real Belgrade. Huh. Wow. The ecosystem that I had created on the page was more true to what I wanted. So I guess that brings up whole questions of authenticity that are pretty complicated. But at least how I've settled them is like, as long as you're true to the world of the book, then people will go with you. Yeah, I mean, fiction, you're allowed. One of my favorite things about I Am Radar is his crazy list of life. His rule book for life. His little rule book for life, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Have people asked you like to create all 272 of them? Not yet. They might. That's another thing I'm just a sucker for is like incomplete lists. You're given like item number 272, but not the preceding ones because it's suggestive of a sort of infinite madness. You know, I just like omission a lot because it invites the reader into the game. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And some of his rules for life are like just really dumb. They're so good. (laughs) They're so good. Cheese is always important. Is that or always essential? That's really that that is actually true. That is a good rule. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You can't argue with that. (laughs) No. Yeah. It's a little bit heartbreaking from his character because, you know, here's a guy who's still living with his parents and he's like a savant when it comes to anything electrical and radio and he can like fix anything. But when it comes to people, he doesn't actually know how to fix them. So, yeah, his way of relating is to write these rules down. I'm not sure if he follows them or whether one should follow them. But Well, and it comes from a weird place of wisdom where it's like he thinks that he's living life. Right. But he kind of hasn't yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I don't know. I guess I tend to write these sort of awkward boy characters, you know. There's such a humanity yeah. to him, though. I don't know. It's perfect. It's also nice writing these characters that sort of become watchers of the world because they allow you a certain leeway in terms of sort of like an observational mist around everything. And the reader at once is seeing the world through his eyes, but also seeing him see the world, you know, and there's that kind of constant duality going. So you can kind of see his development as he watches things. And then when he becomes an active participant, you're like, all right. you know, Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, well, and I think there is a certain thing, too, where like, they need to be awkward because then they might just be pretentious. Yeah. They're so smart and there's so much happening. But if they weren't awkward, then you'd just be like, well, that's just kind of obnoxious. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I underlined a lot of different phrases in this book, but one of my favorites was describing the midnight sun in Norway because I grew up in Alaska and you called it a suspension of disbelief. And I just thought it was the perfect way to describe just that eerie, weird magical thing that is having it be pretty much broad daylight in the middle of the night. Time seems sort of auxiliary or like totally arbitrary. Like, and now I guess we'll go to sleep because the clock says we should. You right. know, we took a, a cruise, like a coastal ship up the coast of Norway this summer. And there was just this sense of like, where are we going? It felt like we were kind of going off the map, you know, into this place where the sun forgot to set. I was writing an article for the Times for it. I went in armed with all these amateur anthropological questions like, how does the midnight sun affect you? You know, right. And people were like, we sleep a little bit less in the summer. But like they just, 
you know, it was a little bit like me being like, so you go to sleep every night? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, yeah, that's their reality. So I try not to, I don't know, that's really exotify funny. them too much. That's you know? really funny. But it is weird. It really is weird that up there, particularly in the Arctic, a year becomes a single day, basically. The winter is nighttime and the summer is daytime. Yeah, I think it ends up being a really manic existence there because of that. And I think even in the Midwest or like anywhere where you can have a harsh winter and then a nice summer, there is that sense of like you have to take advantage of the nice weather while it's there because you know you won't have it for that long. But I think especially in the Arctic, there is just this sense of almost constant impending doom. So you do have to just get as much out of it as you possibly can. Right. Yeah. Rafe Larson's new book is I Am Radar. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Rafe Larson. That's Larson with an S-E-N. You know I had to say that, Tricia. Still to come, homework from the best shows Tom Sharpling and John Worcester and a conversation with Iranian journalist Nazila Fatih. This is Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Nazila Fadi is an Iranian journalist and author of the new book, The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran. She's here to introduce us to Shireen Abadi, an Iranian lawyer and human rights activist. In 2003, Abadi became the first Iranian to win a Nobel Peace Prize for her work on rights for women, children, and refugees. I had known uh, Shireen Abadi because I interviewed her. She was one of the very few secular feminists inside the country who were fighting for more rights for women. After the revolution, the, the revolutionaries change all the laws according to the Islamic law. And they introduced whatever was in the Sharia into Iran's penal code and uh, the family code, the civil code, all the laws. And uh, she and a few others constantly wrote about it, talk about it, and they pressed for change. So she was one of the good sources that I always interviewed. I respected her a lot. But her books were written in Persian. So when she asked me to translate her book, I was very excited. But the process was very interesting because I got to know all the Iranian laws, uh, especially the ones that are contrary to the international conventions that Iran has signed, and it needs to change them. And of course, they are mostly the ones about women's rights, religious minorities, all of them all pertaining to human rights. And so it helped me learn not only everything about the Iranian legal system, but also international conventions. And then what was it like for you knowing her, watching her win the Nobel Prize and then have it taken away? It was stolen from her. Yeah, it was stolen from a safe where she kept it. So as an Iranian woman, I was extremely proud. And I felt that the prize was given to her symbolically, but a lot of Iranian women took credit for it. It was like the prize was given to Iranian women in general. And 
I think it was a very well-deserved prize because women have been among the most repressed group, half of the population, since the revolution, and they've never given up. They've always been fighting on all fronts for, for more rights in the family, more rights in society. They've defied the restrictions against themselves. So when Shirin Ebadi got it as like a voice for Iranian women, it was a moment that we all felt very, very proud. And then she apparently kept the prize in a safe. And after she left the country in 2009, it was stolen. Wow. Stolen by authorities? Stolen just stolen? Is it unclear? I I don't know, but the assumption is that it was stolen by authorities because not anyone can go and open a safe. You can find more information about Abadi on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. We'll also have a link there to how you can find Nazila's new book, The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran. Now it's time for homework. I feel like this homework from Rafe Larson perfectly captures the essence of Rafe Larson. How about this? How about you write a monologue, a 15-minute monologue, that is meant to be read over the radio at about 2 a.m. to nobody? It's very theatrical homework, and we have another bonus assignment for you that's also a little theatrical from the guys over at The Best Show. This is John Worster, and your homework assignment is to watch the movie American Harmony. It's a documentary about a genre of music I can guarantee you that you hate, barbershop quartet singing. It crushes American Idol boys. Barbershop's where it's at. It's like the Super Bowl. We love to show off. There's no instruments in front of you. It's you, your voice, and the audience. If you have any interest in a genre of music that you hate, you have to see American Harmony. Cupid is a calling. Hey, Jack and Jill. It's just about the time for making love. Someone is waiting all along. Hey, this is Tom Sharpling, and my homework assignment is for you to read the Bob Fosse biography that's out now. It's in paperback, and it's about 600 pages long, and it breaks down the life of a guy who was really pretty revolutionary in so many different ways and did so many different things, and it helps you understand the movie, all that jazz, even better. So read the book, then watch the movie, all that jazz, and uh, you will realize how a weird dancing dude could uh, change the whole world. Bob Fosse holds a very special place in my heart. Incredible choreographer, responsible for the choreography in a lot of the movie musicals you may have grown up watching on VHS like me, or if you were lucky enough to see his work on Broadway itself. He's one of the most prolific choreographers of... American musical theater. Greta, this is one of the places where... (laughs) Yeah, totally. It sounds like. Yeah. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions. You heard a lot of Nerd Confessions last week from our day spent gallivanting around Adler Planetarium for Pi Day. I feel like gallivanting is the perfect word for that, <laughs> Trisha. And we had one more that we wanted you to hear from that day. I believe that I realized I was a nerd in 1979 when I went in January in 22 below zero to Manitoba, Canada to watch the total eclipse of the sun. And we, when we did this, we did it and slept in a van. 
because um, we had no money. So we just so me and a friend drove up, slept in sleeping bags in the back of his van to see the total eclipse. I thought that confirmed me completely as a nerd. One of the most incredible things I've ever seen in my life. It, um, we were on the banks of the Assisabone River in a parking lot, set up with set up telescopes and things, and when the shadows got darker and darker, and then when the just before the sun blinked out. Here we were in this quiet, frozen landscape, and every bird and animal, it, it just all the birds went crazy and did all their sunset calls all at once. And then the, all the street lights popped up. There was a 360-degree sunset around us, and the stars came out. It was wonderful. Trisha, you know I love a good, quiet, frozen landscape. If you want a more recent visual than 1979 for people experiencing a solar eclipse, check out a video we've posted under at podcast.com from the most recent solar eclipse just a few days ago. And call us at 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags are welcome. Call and leave your nerd confession 312-600-5638. Or you can suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile. Or just say hi. We love voicemails. Nerdette is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Dussault, Brad Helm, and Colleen Pellisier. Thanks to Rafe Larson, Nazila Fadi, Tom Sharpling, and John Worster for joining us this week. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Throw us some stars and write a review if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent Dr. Jersey Gator did on iTunes. We appreciate the stars, the retweets, and the shares. Find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's where you can sign up for our email newsletter. And our email newsletter is where once a week we send you updates about the show, extra credit homework assignments, and the best links from the interwebs we can find. Talk with us on Twitter at Nerdette Podcast, like us on Facebook. And follow us on Instagram for mini book reviews. The latest is my review of The Martian, which, spoiler alert, is glowing. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. There's one other way you can help Nerdette. Sponsor the show and be one of the awesome businesses, events, or groups that you hear about in the form of underwriting. It's a win-win. You get your message heard by the army of nerds who listen to this show, and we get to, you know, have a few shekels to buy frozen yogurt occasionally and fuel our podcast making. If someone wants to pay us in frozen yogurt, we could also just cut out the middleman. Email nerdupodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.